Well, I bet if I were to take a poll among all of those here today who are, uh, let's say, in their 30s or older, in fact, probably even in your late 20s or older, and I ask you this question, has your life turned out exactly like you thought it would back when you were in school? <clears throat> Everything you've gone through since then, the direction your life has taken and where you've ended up at this point in your life, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, if I ask you to respond to that question as your life turned out just like you thought it would, I think we would be hard-pressed to find many people, if any, who would say yes. Everything in my life has gone exactly like I thought it would. Why? Because none of us knows, of course, what tomorrow holds. Right Now that doesn't stop us from planning for tomorrow and doing as much as we possibly can to see those plans come to fruition. So we plan for our future by attempting to order each step of the way through the journey to ensure that all goes as planned, uh, at least as best we can, right? We invest significant amounts of our, um, our money and time and resources and energy and focus into hopefully securing a future that we think is best for us and our families all the way through to the end of our lives. We buy insurance policies. Uh, we create retirement funds. We, we make living wills, right? We lock into careers that provide hopefully the best income and the best benefits and the most security for our future. We, uh, we buy houses in specific areas so that our kids can go to certain schools and we, we look for particular neighborhoods that we think are safer than others. We gravitate toward relationships that benefit us the most personally and on and on and on the list goes while we try and steer clear, of course, of anything that we think may jeopardize those future plans. And I'm not necessarily saying that you shouldn't do some of those things for yourself or for your family. But look, what if that's not exactly how it's supposed to be? What if God has something different in mind for your future? In fact, what if God is calling you to something entirely different? What if He's calling you to risk all of it, would you do it? Because first of all, we all know that life never turns out the way we think it will anyway, and far more importantly, God has always called His people to risk everything for Him. I've heard Christians say that when you go out on a limb or, uh, uh, for Jesus or, or take a leap of faith for Jesus, you're actually in the safest place that you could ever be because at that moment you are in the very center of His will. Well, in light of eternity, that statement is true. Because as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, our eternity is secure in Him. But listen, when it comes to our lives on this earth, all bets are off. From the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament apostles and everywhere in between, we find men and women who are in the very center of God's will being persecuted, tortured, and killed for the sake of Christ, including believers around the world today. See, I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan for our future. I just think that many of us are probably planning for the wrong future. We're putting all of our money and our time and our resources and our energy and our focus into our future on this earth instead of our future in eternity. Yet all throughout the scriptures, God called men and women to risk their future on this earth for the sake of their future and the future of his people in eternity. And I don't think he's changed in that regard at all. In fact, as you go throughout life, 
if you're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit within you, you will actually find him asking you to risk what you have, to risk where you are, to risk what you've built, to risk the life you've secured for yourself and to risk the future you've been planning on for something entirely different than what you thought your life would look like. Moses wasn't planning on leading a couple of million people out of Egypt while being pursued by the most powerful army on the earth at the time. But that is exactly what God called him to do. Rahab wasn't planning on defying her own people and her government by hiding enemy spies in her house at the imminent risk of her own life. But that is exactly what God called her to do. David wasn't planning as a boy to have to stand up to a giant Philistine warrior while the rest of the Israelite army cowered in fear behind him, but that is exactly what God called him to do. Mary wasn't planning on miraculously conceiving, carrying, and raising the Messiah only to watch him be brutally murdered on a Roman cross, but that is exactly what God called her to do. The apostles weren't planning on dying in the most horrific ways for the sake of the gospel, but that is exactly what God called them to do. So what if God is calling you to a future that is different than the one you've been planning on? Are you willing to risk everything you've planned to see God's plan realized in your life? Because I can tell you this, walking with God will require nothing less of you. It's something that you something you learn how to do when you risk everything for Christ, you learn how to trust Him in ways you never imagined you would have to, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through the biblical account of creation. And today is part two of the sermon that we started last week where we discussed the fact that walking with God means walking away from the world, which was also the first point in our outline, if you're keeping an outline from that first half of the message. And so today, we're going to look at what it means to truly walk with Him as we finish chapter 6 and work our way through chapter 7 as well. So let's turn there together to chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. If you have your Bibles, if not, we'll also have it on the screens. Uh, Chapter 6, we'll begin with verse 9, where we left off last week, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Pitch is the resin inside the wood that they used to use to, of course, waterproof vessels and for all sorts of other things in ancient times. Verse 15, this is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. 
of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So, because of the unabated wickedness of mankind, and specifically uh, the defilement of the genetic code of the human race by the sons of God, as we discussed last week, God has to purge the earth of humanity in order to preserve a remnant of humankind that can carry on the line of Christ. And so he chooses to do that through Noah, a man who is said to have walked with God in verse 9. And because he's going to wipe off of the face of the earth as many as 7 billion or more people, including all the animals in a massive flood, Noah is going to need a massive boat, right? Because he's not only uh, saving himself and his family, but a remnant of every animal kind as well. So God instructs him to build an ark, which was basically a well-ventilated floating barge made out of gopher wood, which is the equivalent of cypress wood today. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And contrary uh, to the common assertion that there's no way the ark would have been large enough to carry all of those animals and supplies, if the ark carried two of every family of animals, then there were roughly 700 pairs of animals. And even if the ark carried two of every species of animals. That means there were roughly 35,000 pairs of animals. Keeping in mind the fact that the average size of a land animal is smaller than a sheep, given the dimensions of the ark, it would have been large enough to carry 136,560 sheep in half of its capacity, which of course leaves more than enough room for people, food, water, and any other provisions that may have been needed, which uh, which, by the way, has been accepted throughout history by Christian and Jewish and secular researchers alike. The idea that the ark is a religious myth has, for the most part, been a modern phenomenon. In uh, 275 B.C., Barossus, a Babylonian historian, wrote of the ark, but of this ship that grounded in Armenia, some part still remains in the mountains and some get pitch from the ship by scraping it off. In A.D. 75, Flavius Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that the locals collected relics from the ark and showed them off to this very day. He also said that all of the ancient historians he knew of wrote about the ark. In A.D. 180, Theophilus of Antioch wrote, The remains of the ark are to this day to be seen in the mountains. In 1876, a distinguished British statesman and author, Viscount James Bryce, climbed Mount Ararat and reported finding a four-foot-long piece of hand-tooled timber at an altitude of more than 13,000 feet. In 1936, a young British archaeologist named Hardwick Knight hiked across Ararat and discovered interlocking hand-tooled timbers at a height of 14,000 feet. The truth is, there's a fascinating amount of research and findings concerning the Ark, and yet... As tempting as it may be to focus on the evidence that may exist in support of the viability of the biblical claims about the ark itself, the much bigger story here, and the one that we really need to focus on today is the story of what God was doing in and through the life of Noah. Because keep in mind, up to this point, Noah's life was on a completely different path. Right? Noah was a preacher 
of righteousness, according to the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.5. And why do preachers preach? To lead others to God, right? I think the very last thing on Noah's mind would have been to build a giant boat for his family and some of the animals to escape a great disaster while the rest of the world, including all of the people that he had been preaching to for 500 years, were annihilated. Of course, we don't know exactly uh, how Noah made his living before the flood. We do know from chapter 9 that after the flood, he becomes a farmer and plants a vineyard. And the truth is, in his 600 years of living before the flood, 500 of those before building the ark, he probably knew how to do a lot of different things. And yet, I don't think building massive seafaring barges was probably one of them. Regardless of whatever it was, that he was occupied with before the flood in addition to preaching. Certainly it all came to a halt when God called him to build this ark. In fact, it is common in church tradition to teach that Noah was preaching salvation to the masses while he was building the ark, warning them of the impending flood, but that makes no sense because God clearly told Noah before he ever started building the ark that its sole purpose was to save Noah and his immediate family and some of the animals. You see, once he started building the ark, the preaching would have stopped. Because there was no reason to preach anymore as God had put a strict limit on who would be able to board the ship. And so everything that Noah had worked for, whatever dwellings, houses he'd built, think about it, whatever land he'd developed for 500 years, whatever relationships he'd formed outside of his immediate family, whatever souls he hoped to save, everything that Noah worked for for centuries was all about to be gone forever. The very life that Noah had built for himself before God called him to this new future, that life was over. Every other pursuit abandoned, while every ounce of his time, resources, energy, and focus would now be devoted to a singular purpose, building this massive lifeboat, and it would require everything that Noah had. The truth is, for Noah, for Noah to continue to walk with God, it would mean a profound upheaval of his entire life and a complete abandonment of his own plans. But look, sometimes that's what walking with God looks like. Sometimes walking with God means risking everything. One of my favorite Bible scholars, John Stott, once said, Insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and the atonement were. What a breach of convention and decorum that Almighty God should renounce His privileges in order to take human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security except in His Father. So to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for His sake. Listen. If you're not ready to risk everything for Christ then you're not ready for the future He has planned for you. Because when you're walking with God, there will absolutely be times in your life when you have to lay it all on the line. Of course, the alternative, and one I fear far too many Christians choose today, is to play it safe, to choose the way of comfort and security and safety, risking as little as possible in the process. But look, uh, Noah didn't save humankind an animal kind from a worldwide flood by playing it safe. 
Moses didn't lead God's people to freedom from their captivity in Egypt because someone decided to play it safe. Joshua didn't lead God's people into the promised land because someone decided to play it safe. Gideon didn't defeat 135,000 Midian soldiers with only 300 of God's chosen men because someone decided to play it safe. The church didn't spread across the ancient world like wildfire in the midst of brutal persecution because someone decided to play it safe. And of course, Jesus didn't defeat death and the powers of hell by deciding to play it safe. Now listen, you will never accomplish or experience all that God has created you to accomplish and experience in this life by deciding to play it safe. Charles Spurgeon once said, They who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know but little of the God of tempests, but they who do business in great waters, these see as wonders in the deep. I've said it many times before, you can have great risk without great success, but you cannot have great success without great risk. The truth is you will never accomplish or experience all that God created you to accomplish and experience in this life by deciding to play it safe. So why don't we take more risks for Christ? Well, in part, it's because we don't fully trust him, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But it's also because of fear of what might happen to us personally. You see, we've become so, uh, so conditioned in our culture to seek comfort first. And listen, I'll be the first one to tell you that I have a deep appreciation for this country uh, that we live in and the innumerable blessings and prosperity that we enjoy every day because of it. I'm convinced there's no better place to live on this earth than America. But look, seeking comfort is often antithetical to the call of God on our lives because sometimes God calls us to do hard things. Sometimes he calls us to lay it all on the line. Sometimes he calls us to risk everything in order to accomplish his plan for our lives and in the lives of others. And yet we've become so averse to anything that threatens our comfort or safety. In fact, uh, it's common in much of the American church today to believe that God only wants us to be comfortable and safe. And the net result is a church that has become completely ineffective, powerless because we refuse to do hard things for God. So look. If you believe that God only wants you to be comfortable and safe and prosperous, then it may be time to go back and read through the Bible again because I'm pretty certain that he loved all of those people in the Bible just as much as he loves us today and yet he constantly led them away from comfort, away from safety, away from prosperity, away from certainty, away from the predictable into a life of great unknowns, difficult situations, difficult circumstances that required them to risk everything and at times sacrifice everything including their very lives listen you won't ever be able to accept that that God wants you to take great risks for him as long as your focus is on your own comfort and security uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote living by faith includes the call to something greater than cowardly self-preservation okay the bottom line is we have to get over this idea that risk is bad or that somehow it's not God's will for us. The Apostle Paul said, I do not account my life of any 
value. Now, how do you think that statement would fly in our culture today? I'm talking about our church culture. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, 24. Today we would say, no, Paul, you don't understand. Buddy, you have to learn to love and take care of yourself before you can love and take care of anyone else. Now look, I'm not saying we should hate ourselves. Not at all. But clearly, Paul considered the call of Christ on his life of more value than his life itself. We love to quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me as if to say I can achieve all my dreams on this earth for a better life because that's what Jesus wants for me. But we never read the two verses that immediately precede it. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. In other words, I can risk it all for Christ and even when that leaves me facing great need, I know I'll be okay because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Strengthens me, why? Because I'm weak from risking everything for Christ. So what, is he, what has he called you to do? What has he called you to be a part of? What has he called you to sacrifice? What has God called you to risk everything for? You can be sure of this. Whatever it is, you will never accomplish or experience all that God created you to accomplish and experience in this life until you're willing to risk everything for the sake of that call. Because the truth is, whether we like it or not, sometimes we're called by Christ to risk everything for Him. In fact, sometimes that's what walking with God looks like. So are you willing to risk it all for him? Because he risked it all for you. Let's keep reading. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded him. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So after about a hundred years, depending upon how uh, uh, you reconcile the math, some scholars say 70 years, 
some say 120, most agree it was 100. We don't know for certain, but for the better part of a century, Noah, abandoning every other pursuit in his life, risks everything to build this boat. And then he loads two of every kind of animal into it, along with some extras to account for the sacrifices that were to be made after the flood was over. And then all of the supplies and provisions that they would need to survive the journey. And then everything is ready. The work is done. The ark is built. The supplies are loaded. The animals are there, if not all inside at this point. All that is missing is the rain, which doesn't come for another seven days. And so they wait. Can you imagine it? Hour after agonizing hour. Day after excruciating day. Can you imagine the anticipation, the stress, the ominous sense of foreboding as Noah and his family gathered at the ark, surrounded by thousands of animals, the culmination of everything they've worked for for a century, and now nothing. For a solid week, they wait, and not one drop of rain. Yet they knew it was coming. But all they could do was wait. And if that wasn't hard enough, Noah also knew that this storm would not only flood the earth, but it would wipe out all of life left on the earth. So after 500 years of preaching, 500 years of preaching righteousness, Noah has seven days of silence to ponder the fact that apart from his immediate family, he hasn't made one single convert it's breathtaking you get notice that Noah still trusts God in fact the depth of trust that Noah must have had in God at this point in his life it's truly hard for us to imagine how many of us after doing exactly what God has called us to do for our entire lives without one single success story how many of us would still trust him the truth is, sometimes that's what walking with God looks like. Sometimes walking with God means trusting Him when it seems like nothing is happening. Missionary and author Elizabeth Elliot once said, whatever dark tunnel we may be called upon to travel through, God has been there. And that week before the storm, there was no celebration. There was no preaching, there was no more building or preparing, only silence in the solemn realization that everything Noah had worked for on this earth, including the countless lost souls he'd preached to, was all about to disappear forever. What was God doing? Why seven days of silence? Why, why do we have to wait for what you've already promised would come? I'm already losing everything and everyone I've ever known outside of my family. God, the last thing I need is a week of silence. A week where nothing happens. With nothing to do but think about everything I've lost after being obedient to your call on my life. I can't imagine the questions and all of the emotion that Noah must have been feeling. But he trusted God. Even when it seemed like nothing was happening. After all those years of preaching, he trusted God even though no one was responding to the truth. And now, in this week, leading up to the storm, Noah faithfully waited on God, trusting that he would do exactly what he said he was going to do. The fact is, we don't know exactly why God waited 
Seven days for the rain to start. I was reading in the ancient rabbinical writings, the Jewish Midrash, it is written that God waited seven days before the flood to grieve for the world. Whatever the reason for the seven days, we know for certain that it was not wasted time. Because God never wastes one moment of time. Psalm 37, 18 says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. Who are the blameless? That's us. Everyone who's been made blameless in Christ, and he says that he knows every one of our days, even the ones where it seems like nothing is happening. You see, there's, there's divine purpose behind every second of your life, which means God not only never wastes his time, but listen, God never wastes your time either. Maybe you've risked something big for God. Maybe, maybe you've pursued that calling in your life. Maybe you've given up other opportunities and sacrificed comfort and security to answer that call, and yet it seems like nothing is happening. Listen, don't lose your nerve. Don't give up now. Because God never wastes a moment of time and he is not wasting yours. When he calls you to something, there is a purpose for every single step in that journey, even the steps when it seems like you aren't going anywhere. By the way, inactivity on your part does not equate to inactivity on God's part. In fact, according to Jesus in John 5, 17, God is always working on your behalf, always even when it seems like nothing is happening. And yet I've known so many professing believers who build their ark. They, they spend years building and crafting and supplying the call of God on their life only to abandon that call because there's a period of time where it seems like nothing significant is happening. Or maybe they haven't seen the fruit of that ministry that they expected to see. It's the equivalent of Noah spending a hundred years building and crafting and supplying the ark and then walking away from it during the seven days before the flood because nothing seemed to be happening. It sounds ridiculous, I know. But that's exactly what we're doing when we walk away from the call of God on our lives. When you experience a season of time that seems unproductive or unfruitful spiritually and all of a sudden you begin to question everything you've worked toward, everything you've built for Christ, the entire foundation of your calling and so you walk away from your ministry? You walk away from the church? You walk away from those relationships that you've invested your life into and leave that calling in the dust because it seemed like nothing was happening right when God was preparing you for the greatest journey of your life. Listen, when you give everything you can for Christ and nothing seems to be happening as a result, don't give up. When people aren't responding like you think they should, don't give up. When the ministry isn't taking off like you thought it would, listen, don't give up. When you've been preparing for something for so long and yet it seems like everything is ground to a halt, don't give up. When the vision God has given you for your future seems to have stalled out, don't you dare give up because God is always working on your behalf. And if you will simply double down on that commitment and stay the course, I'm telling you, God will lead you on the greatest journey of your life. Just remember, when it seems like Nothing is happening. Much 
is actually happening. Because God isn't wasting His time or yours. The truth is, at times, that's simply what walking with God looks like. In fact, when it seems like nothing is happening, often that is just the calm before the storm. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 11 to the end of the chapter. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. Rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. This is perhaps the most well-known story in all of biblical scripture, and not just, uh, by the way, in Jewish or Christian cultures. In fact, uh, in fact, there are many ancient and modern cultures outside of Judaism and Christianity who are not only familiar with, but also recognize as historically valid this story or some version of it. Some of the oldest writings that we have that have ever been discovered that are available to us today came out of Mesopotamia from the Bronze Age, including uh, the Sumerian writings, the Gilgamesh epic, the Atrahasis tablets, and others who all record a flood in their history, listen, from the same time period as the Genesis account. The Atrahasis tablets translated in the late 1800s say there was a great flood sent by the gods to destroy human life. Only the good man, Atrahasis, his name, uh, by the way, translates as exceedingly wise, was warned of the impending deluge by the god A, who instructed him to build an ark to save himself. And so Atrahasis heeded the words of the god, loading two of every kind of animal into the ark that were sent to him by his god, just as in the biblical account. And by doing so, he preserved human and animal life on earth. Fascinating, isn't it? In the Gilgamesh epic, one of the earliest surviving works of literature that we have in existence today, in fact, some say it is the oldest writing that we have, which was discovered in the mid-19th century in the ruins of the great library in Nineveh. And that story, Gilgamesh, is the main character who, interestingly enough, is one of the rulers listed in the Sumerian king list that we talked about last week. And as the story goes, there is another character who is introduced named Unapatism, who is the character most like the biblical Noah, 
who builds a ship to weather the great deluge or the great flood that destroys mankind. And so he takes the seed of all living things, all his relatives, cattle and wild beasts onto the ship to save them from the storm. And then after the flood begins to subside, he releases birds to find land. And then eventually the ship lands on a mountain after the flood is over. Sounds awfully similar, doesn't it, to the account of Noah. In ancient Hindu writings, there's a story of a Hindu god who informs the king that there is an all-destructive deluge which was coming very soon. And so the king builds a huge boat which houses his family and then he collects nine types of seeds and animals to repopulate the earth. And then eventually the flood ends and the oceans and seas recede. In the sacred book of the Mayan people from the Americas, there's a great flood story. Likewise, from the Chow Dynasty in China, there's a record of a catastrophic flood that altered the land forever, and it is one of the oldest historical records ever recovered in China. We have ancient Akkadian texts that describe a devastating flood of cosmic proportions sent by the gods while Ninurta, an exalted lord, rides upon the deluge. I could go on and on and on about the ancient pagan cultures and modern religions as well, who have similar worldwide flood stories in their history, including Islam, which recognizes the flood story of Noah as historically valid. In fact, the local Muslim populations who live in and around the region of Mount Ararat in Turkey today all claim that the remnants of Noah's Ark are sitting atop Ararat to this day. People often ask, well, why then are the names and some of the details in many of these stories different than what we have in the biblical account? And why would there be multiple gods in some of those stories instead of the one true creator God who we find in the Bible? Well, obviously, the story would have been handed down from Noah to his descendants, who in turn would have spread the story over time and distance and eventually even across other cultures and religions who ultimately co-opted and probably corrupted the story as their own, just as we see some other religions today who claim to have their roots in Christianity. Even some of those still claim to be Christian, and yet they've added to God's word with their own revelations and versions of the biblical account of the gospel, corrupting God's word and God's message. The point is, we have tremendous amounts of evidence in the form of historical records from cultures all over the world that there was indeed a worldwide flood like the one described here in Genesis 7. And yet, the purpose of this story is not to try and prove itself historically accurate, even though it is. No, this was written to God's people under the assumption that we would already believe that God was telling us the truth. You see, the purpose of the story is to inform us of the links that God goes to to provide salvation for His people even when everything in our lives and on this earth seems to be conspiring against us. That's what He did for us through Noah. It's what He did for us through Moses, and that is what He's still doing for us through Jesus Christ today. This is a story about those who walk with God even when no one else will and no matter what is happening in our lives. So after being rejected day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year by the people he was preaching to after witnessing the overwhelming increase of evil on the earth in spite of Noah's attempts to spread the truth about God and after having to say goodbye to the only life and home he'd ever known for the past six 
hundred years, Noah is now helplessly floating on a massive wooden barge, being tossed around on violent seas while trying to keep his family and thousands of animals alive with absolutely no idea of when or how the storm will ever end. You see, walking with God not only means trusting Him when it seems like nothing is happening, but walking with God means trusting Him when it seems like everything is happening. All at once. I'm not sure which is harder on us when it seems that nothing is happening or when it seems like everything is happening, but the key in either case is that we trust Him in every moment, whether in silence or in storm. We must learn to trust God and not give up. The 19th century preacher Richard Fuller once wrote, You must stay upon the Lord, and come what may, winds, waves, cross seas, thunder, lightning, frowning rocks, roaring breakers, no matter what, you must lash yourself to the helm and hold fast your confidence in God's faithfulness, His covenant engagement, His everlasting love in Christ Jesus. Look, sometimes walking with God means riding out the storms of life, but honestly, what's the alternative? Giving up in the midst of the storm, allowing ourselves to drown under the weight of our own circumstances? It's easy to feel like we're in control of everything in our lives until something goes sideways and then we panic and plead with God to do something, to take control of the situation as if he were not already in control. But you see, that's just it. God is in control all along because God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the silence and he's sovereign over the storm. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. You see, God is not made into something. Listen, God is not made into something more or something less based on how much we trust him. He's not dependent upon or commanded by our level of trust. He's not made any less able by our lack of trust or any more able by an abundance of it. Because God is God. He is immutable, unchangeable, steadfast, all-powerful, unequaled. Our depth of trust or a lack of it does not change him or wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from him. What we do or do not do relative to the measure of trust that we have in Him in any given situation in our lives does not alter God in the equation one iota. Because He is unalterable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, our choice to trust God does not change God. It does, however, profoundly change us. This is why. This is why we have to get over our fear of risk and allow ourselves to be in situations and circumstances and places where we have no other choice but to trust God because the odds are stacked against us. Listen, the outcome is unclear. It may not be entirely safe, and there's no way to predict the results. Sometimes walking with God means trusting Him so much that we risk our reputations. We risk our income. We risk our popularity. We risk our security. We even risk our own necks with no guarantee of how it will all turn out in the end because it is in the face of tremendous difficulties where the only thing left for us to do is to trust him to do what only he can it is in the midst of those storms of life that he does his very best work in our lives 
that will require you to trust him even when everything seems to be going wrong or against you. The truth is, when you walk with God, there will be times when he asks you to risk what you have, to risk where you are, to risk what you've built, to risk the life you've secured for yourself and the future that you've been planning on for something entirely different than what you thought your life would look like. And if you don't trust him in the very depths of your being, you will come up with every excuse in the world as to why that risk isn't right for you. If I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times and many of those times in my own life, by the way. Before I finally came to terms with the fact that the only way I would ever accomplish and experience all that God had created me to accomplish and experience in this life was to risk everything I'd built and pursued for the sake of that call of Christ on my life. But listen, until we get to that place, we dismiss the call when it seems too risky and we go back to planning our future in the safest, most predictable, risk-free ways possible because if you're not ready to risk everything for Christ, then you are not ready for the future he is planned for you. And again, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't plan for your future. I just think that most of us are probably planning for the wrong future. By putting all of our money and time and resources and energy and focus into our future on this earth instead of our future in eternity. And so look, I, if you only take one thing away from this story about Noah and the flood, know this. This world and everything in it is going to pass away. And the only thing left, the only thing left will be the results of the money and time and resources and energy and focus that you invested into eternity. And listen, the more you invest in eternal things, the more you must be willing to risk earthly things. Because that's what walking with God looks like. Let's pray.